Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio, the Middle East Forum Century Radio Hour. Like every week for the last few months, it seems that we start with breaking news. Four American servicemen on patrol in Iraq have been killed by an ISIS suicide bomber. Just weeks after the president made his announcement that ISIS had been defeated in 99% of that country and that the U.S. forces were on their way home, ISIS decided to deliver a parting gift to American forces. Our hearts go out to those who sacrificed the ultimate for their country. And at the same time, we are now in the mire of a great geopolitical vice, being that the town of Manbij itself is surrounded by the Turks in the north, the Russians to the west, ISIS in the middle, and the American forces withdrawing to the east back to Iraq. But what does it mean that when we have an announcement that American forces are leaving this epicenter of violence, when ISIS attacks, is it a way in which to try to drag the Americans back in? Is it a way to test American resolve in defeating ISIS? Is it an invitation, perhaps, that the Turks let up their border controls to allow more nefarious elements to get into that city? Or is it going to be a catalyst to reverse the American decision to leave northeast Syria? These questions we'll try to get into in the rest of the program. But first, let's talk about the importance of Manbij, a country that, or rather a city in a country that many of you have may, may not have had heard of before. But just to give you a little bit of a background of why this is such an important city and why it is such a shame, beyond just the loss of American lives, that this attack took place today. Back in 2011 and 2012, with the beginning of the Syrian uprising against the dictator of that country, Bashar al-Assad, Manbij was controlled by the regime in the first few months of the war, but then it was quickly taken over by members of the Syrian opposition. In 2014, however, they lost their control of the city to ISIS, having the Kurdish elements, this is America's allies in northeast Syria, come back in a few years later to be able to wrestle it away from ISIS, thereby cementing Kurdish control of the Syrian border between Turkey and Syria from the Euphrates River in the west all the way to the border with Iraq in the east. So they, they started this triangle that they were able to control by being able to take over Manbij. That was their first strategic gain before they were able to march on ISIS's former capital in Raqqa, south of that city. Manbij became a testament to the ability for American air power, local militias on the ground, and intelligence coordination with special forces all working in tandem versus the Iraq model from about 15 years ago when we relied on hundreds of thousands of American troops to topple a dictator. The Manbij example showed us that hundreds of American troops working with thousands of our local allies on the ground, called a form of hybrid warfare, if you will, showed what American power could do in smaller numbers, but being used in a tactically smarter way. ISIS eventually was kicked out. The Kurds established control. And now, for the last six months, Manbij has been a political football 
in three different quadrants. The first is as it relates to the American-Turkish relationship. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who we spoke about last week, the president of Turkey, was infuriated after President's National Security Advisor John Bolton came forward and delivered five demands before American troops would withdraw from northeast Syria. One of those was that the Turks would not massacre the Kurds. And you saw President Trump double down on that a few days ago, where he promised economic devastation against Turkey if they were to engage in A, either an invasion of northeast Syria, or B, human rights abuses and genocide. And now it's American law that the prevention of genocide, mass murder, ethnic cleansing, are all American national security concerns. That law was just signed in to passage yesterday by President Trump, the LEV Zell Act. But President Trump promised economic devastation of Turkey, even more than what took place in June of last year, when the Turkish lira, their currency, spiraled out of control, when President Trump invoked sanctions against them because of their holding of a political prisoner, Mr. Andrew Parsons, who's now back in the United States, but was being held as a hostage by the illiberal Turkish regime. So Manbij is the first city that Turkey and her allies would try to take if they were to launch a new front on the Turkish-Syrian border. My position is, is that I think the Turks are trying to extend their control across any territory that Assad and their Russian allies currently are not occupying. The Greater Turkey Project, or their Neo-Ottomanism, going back to the times of the Ottoman Empire, back in 1918 when they lost control of this territory, is what Erdogan's ultimate gains are. He also has elections that he has to worry about. He has to be able to distract his country from the economic ills that are going on inside of his country right now. And what better way than to invade Syria, to fight a phantom enemy. Now, the second quadrant of what Syria and, and, and Manbij and the Kurds, the Americans, and also the Russians have to worry about is if the Americans leave Manbij and the Kurds fear this Turkish invasion coming from the north, who can they rely on? Well, the only great power that is in Syria right now that may be able to provide security guarantees to the Kurds are the Russians. We saw what happened the last time the Turks and the, Ru- and, the, and the Russians got into it over the skies of Syria. A Turkish surface-to-air missile shot down a Russian Su-22 jet, and in response, Russia took out $3 billion in sanctions against the Turks. They restricted airspace to the Turks. They cut off trade with the Turks. They prevented Russian tourists from going to Turkey. They moved naval forces across the Bosphorus Strait all the way down to the southwest corner of Turkey's position in the Mediterranean Sea. They doubled down on the building of air bases in Syria, of naval bases in Syria, of everywhere else. And the situation that we saw then was that Putin asked Erdogan to bend the knee to his power. And that's how Russian supremacy in Syria began. The coup de grace of Russian supremacy in Syria will be the American withdrawal from Manbij and from northeast Syria itself. Because if Russian protection 
is offered to the Kurds, that means that the Assad government will move back into northeast Syria, thereby completing their control of all the territory of the country that they lost starting in 2011. And the third and the last and the most important quadrant of control that the Americans will give up is just what happened today with this horrible, dangerous, and inexcusable attack on American soldiers in Manbij. It is not the state actors like Turkey and Russia that the U.S. still has levers of political power that they can enact to ensure that their own priorities are not made more than America's but it is the fear of non-state actors like ISIS and their ability to reconquer territory, their ability to influence the population, their ability to carry on a $400 million economy that they still have control of, and to wreak havoc amongst America's allies, setting up new bases of support in the vacuum that America will leave, and then the eventual threat that will again face our shores and that of our European allies. That's what happens if America leaves Syria. The suicide bombing today was just an appetizer for the menu of violence that will be facing American concerns, her allies, and those who we were protecting in the past. And that's why we shouldn't leave. After these messages, our first guest. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio. A little over a month ago, the Middle East Forum put out its 25th anniversary issue of Middle East Quarterly, the flagship publication that has been the intellectual backbone of our institution for the past 25 years. And now that we come up on our organization's 25th anniversary and also our journals, I'd like to be, I will over the next few weeks be bringing on some of the authors of the latest edition of this publication to discuss not just what they wrote, but how it applies to the news of the day. And I couldn't think, unfortunately, to my chagrin because of what happened this morning, but because this individual is an expert on what we were just talking about with the tactical analysis of the ISIS attack, and now I'd like to be able to get into the ideology behind that. 
My next guest is Dr. Jonathan Cole, a research fellow at the Center for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Stewart University in Canberra, Australia. He has a master's in Middle Eastern Studies from the Australian National University and previously worked as a senior terrorism analyst at the Office of National Assessments and as an assistant director at the Australian Signals Directorate. His research is focused on the intersection of religion and politics with a particular reference to Christianity and Islam. His forthcoming book that everyone should buy is called Christian Political Theology in an Age of Discontent, Mediating Scripture, Doctrine, and Political Reality. Dr. Cole is also the author of the article we hope to discuss right now from the Middle East Quarterly, Politics, Theology, and Religion in Jihadist Violence. Dr. Cole, welcome to the program. Good morning, Greg from Australia, and thank you very much for having me. And uh, I, I guess it's good evening to you right now, right? Oh, it's, it's actually good morning, but it's good morning from the future. It's about <laughs> quarter past 2 a.m. in the morning on Thursday. All right, so our, our regular uh, hour is burning the midnight oil. Dr. Cole, I'm not sure if you've been able to follow what's happened in, in, in northeast Syria in the last few hours with this attack against American forces only a few hours after the American um, uh, administration had started planning their rollout and, and reports of Turkey's allies getting ready to mark uh, an invasion of Manbij at zero hour. I want to reflect more beyond the analysis that I did on the top of the hour. But what exactly is ISIS and its... Uh, different elements that are remaining in northeast Syria, thinking, taking an attack on American forces right when they announced that they would leave. Do they hope to invite American forces back in? Is there a an ideological, um, you know, a necessity? Look, we uh, we beat you. You're going to leave, but we're going to give you a bloody nose on the way out too. What's your take on this attack this morning? Well, well, firstly, I am shocked to hear the news, and I, I was actually asleep uh, not not so long ago, so I haven't been had a chance to catch up with the detail. Um, but it's quite possible that with the announcement of the withdrawal, ISIS needs something concrete to try and paint this as a victory, because this is what these groups do all around the world. The jihadists, of course. In their mythology, defeated the Soviet Union. And so in this case, there's nothing like an attack at the 11th hour after the announcement uh, in order to try and validate what I imagine will be the propaganda coming out, namely that we kicked America out of Syria. So you, you, I'm going to jump right to the conclusion of the article that you wrote for the quarterly. And I'd like you to apply this um, idea of the false dichotomy between religion and politics to the current analysis that I would ask you to maybe extend to the imbroglio that the West has in Syria right now. You write, the false dichotomy of religion versus politics is long hamstrung analysis and discussion of the West's conflict with contemporary jihadists. Instead of adhering to the facile and dated paradigm, Western academics, journalists, and policymakers should shed their long-standing denial of the role of Islamic theology in contemporary jihadism. Recognizing that the West confronts a potent Islamic political ideology in the form of a global jihadist movement will be a first step towards understanding the true nature of one of its most enduring security challenges. Now, there was a statement that was made by Senator Lindsey Graham, the U.S. Senator from South Carolina here, who's been a vocal opponent of President Trump's decision to withdraw American troops from Syria, where he said, 
it's better we fight the jihadis over there before they come back here. But the refrain is often that the reason why they're fighting us over here is because we're over there. But I, I think that you give this analysis in your article that this ideology of Islamism and jihadism and all of its different tendencies between religion, politics, and, and the intermingling of the two is not something that is held to borders. It's not a, a nationalist paradigm where they're fighting for their land. It's something where they try to extend a global caliphate, sometimes virtually, sometimes physically, and sometimes like we saw this morning, kinetically, that I think Western policymakers have to understand. So if you were going to advise the president and say this is an ideological battle, it's not one that is just based on geopolitical realities, how would you apply the logic that you put in your article to make the argument to President Trump, you better stay there for a little bit longer, if you were going to make that argument at all. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. Well, I, I think what we really need to get accustomed to in terms of talking about the global threat from Islamist terrorism, which is decades old now, and if you look at the jihadist historiography, this movement begins in the 1960s, so we're now over 50 years into this struggle, and yet we haven't come to terms with, with that reality, so I just want to slip in that context. The virtue of political theology is that it's able to bring together two parts of what has become a very unhelpful dichotomy, and it's just uh, completely uh, mind-baffling that so many scholars and policymakers seem to struggle with the notion that uh, a movement and its actors can be both political and theological at the same time. And in relation particularly to this ideology, a lot of its key ideas are best described as theopolitical. That is, they do relate to coming into power and controlling territory and uh, running the lives of people but the motivation is fundamentally theological in that you're absolutely right. It's not about nationalism or any of these kind of ideas. Um, it's about obeying God's commandment and ensuring that God's will, uh, namely through the Sharia, is implemented right across the world, but particularly in relation to the Muslim lands. Um, and so when it comes to a place like Syria, it's very tempting for the camp that thinks this is all politics, um, never mind the fact that uh, every single piece of jihadist literature opens effectively with the Quran and conducts Quranic exegesis all the way throughout it. This is purely a political movement, and if you limit it down to a political movement, then we become part of the problem because we are a political actor on the global stage, and it is our policies that are causing these poor jihadists to simply respond as a defensive measure. But the reality is, if we, if we leave this battle, the movement doesn't go away because it's not political. It's the, that theological drive that gives it a motivation and impetus, and in particular, an endurance, I think, that a lot of political movements don't have. And so we have no choice but to confront it globally. Right. And, and maybe, you know, I don't want to say everything that's uh, global can also be local, but the, the amount of disagreements within Islam itself, whether we're talking about Shia fundamentalists fighting Sunni jihadis 
or the inability for even within the Sunnah itself to have one derivative of Salafist interpretations or another of political Islamists. I mean, this theology is, is, is I'm, not, I'm not speaking about Islam, I'm speaking about jihadism, right? We have to differentiate here. You have that of Islam, which is, uh, for the most part, a, uh, a, a, a peaceful and... Um, you know, a well-respected global religion, one of the top two, right? We've got Christianity and, and, and Islam back and forth for who has more numbers. But then we have Islamism, which is that next step on the road to extremism, where we have those who want to be able to invoke the more draconian ideas or, or the more draconian interpretations of the ideas within Islam or within the Sharia Islamic law and the Hadith, that's the interpretation. And then this is where we get down a slippery slope on the way to violence. And I think you do an excellent job of sort of um, comparing where one individual's version of Islam is maybe just for practice in the mosque and at home, but then another is, is they take this, they warp the ideology, they make it political, but it's not the, I think this was a quote that came from the article, the uh, uh, radicalizing of Islam, but it's actually Islamism itself is, is in its own true form, its own version of radicalism. It's not like someone took Islam and decided to make it uh, um, you know, a, a deviant version. You you have thousands of different ways to interpret it. So my my question to you is is when Western policymakers are faced with trying to differentiate, whether it be their allies in the Middle East. You know, for instance, the U.S. is allied with Saudi Arabia, which practices its own ultra conservative version of Wahhabist um, Islam, and and they're you know trying to make some reforms. But every day in the news, we see that there's new accusation of some kind of malfeasance. But then it also has to be able to contend with an enemy like ISIS or Al Qaeda or uh, Hezbollah al Tahrir, depending on the uh, you know the organization that we're talking about. And how is the U.S. on one hand able to work with more conservative uh, political you know versions of Islam itself, and on the other hand, we're fighting groups who have openly declared violence against us, but we're asking them to reform because I mean I mean the only option we have with ISIS is to quote Obama destroy, uh, degrade. And to um, disintegrate, you know that force. But on the other hand, we're also working with pretty draconian guys who are in in a position of national power. How, how do we differentiate between that, and how do we encourage the reform of the nonviolent in order to stamp out the violent? That's a great question and a great challenge for Western policymakers, Greg. And you're absolutely right that with about a billion adherents. Uh, comes a huge amount of diversity in interpretation, practice, um, cultural context, and it means that counterterrorism policy is actually going to be quite complex and operate on multiple levels because we do need to make some important distinctions. Most Western countries have sizable Muslim diasporas, and the majority of those Muslims are upstanding, law-abiding citizens who contribute to the common good of their communities. But unfortunately, all it takes is a, a small percentage, and you can extend that globally. So a proportionally very small percentage of Muslims actively support one of the jihadist fronts around the globe or one of the organizations, but because of the potency and the violence and the threat that that small minority poses to, in some cases, the stability and welfare of whole states, as we've seen in Syria and Afghanistan and 
Somalia, and the list is quite big, but also an enduring risk of violence against the lives of citizens in countries like um, America, we have to somehow, on the one hand, have, like you said, a kinetic arm of CT, but at the same time, we actually depend on the collaboration and cooperation of both diaspora populations who are a frontline resource when it comes to counterterrorism because they're, in, they're the closest in touch with the, and the best able to identify when uh, an individual is going down the path of radicalization, whether it's a family member or a member of the community. But there are states, like you mentioned, and Saudi Arabia is the prime example which has one of the most conservative uh, you know, interpretations and practices of Islam at the state level, being Wahhabi or a type of Salafism. And so we do need these partnerships. And this is why I think, or one of the reasons why we have struggled so much in the West to really understand the nature of the problem. And this is part of the attraction of just putting it down to politics because it's a lot simpler we don't have to deal with the fact that uh, certain interpretations of a religion that doesn't necessarily lead to violence creates a problem. And that's, uh, I don't have any uh, uh, panaceas for this. It's an incredibly difficult, complex uh, problem that requires a lot of fine calibration in my view. Right. But I, I think what you do in your article is you make the first distinction on this issue that, that I've read about in a while, at least of how we treat non-state actor jihadists and members of Islamist political parties versus countries that may adhere to a more strict version of Islam but are disinterested in extending that beyond their borders. You write, jihadists aim to redraw or remove boundaries between states and establish a global caliphate. So going back to the global versus local analysis, jihadists are more interested and extending their interpretation of Islam beyond the areas that they currently control or they would like to control. They want to extend it all the way from uh, uh, Andalus, right, from Spain to, uh, to Rome and, and, and then all the way out as far as, uh, as uh, you know, Eastern India to be able to get their control. But when we speak about America's allies in the region that may practice a more draconian or conservative version of Islam, we see reformers, not, not religious reformers, but political reformers like Mohammed bin Salman. Now, now I'm not trying to make this case for Saudi Arabia right now where um, some of their actions, which are completely anathematic to uh, Western liberal ideas, is the topic that we have to be concerned about. But if we deal with the real politique of the situation, ISIS wants to control Paris, Rome, the UK, whatever else. Saudi Arabia is more interested in its own backyard. Now, that wasn't always the case, but I think that it's an example of showing a country that with, I don't want to call it Western coddling, but maybe Western cajoling can move in the right direction. And um, this is how your theory that you're putting here, where we have politics, we have religion, we have theology, is a way to make a cookie cutter analysis, if you will, on a country by country basis and show how it differentiates from jihadist groups. So I really have to commend you on the ability to apply theory here and to, to make the case for 
why policymakers have to differentiate between the non-state actor jihadists and even some state actor jihadists, I would even go so far as to say Iran and its uh, globalist ambitions versus that of other countries like Saudi Arabia. You offer us a new paradigm. Now, we've got about two minutes left. Uh, your closing thoughts on how the article that you wrote on this can apply to maybe Australian policymakers or even if you were to walk into a member of parliament or a member of Congress's office, what should they take away from what you're writing here? Uh, what I would like them to take away is an understanding of the problem, and in the article that there's a heavy focus on these non-state actors, and I'm, I'm totally right about the, the, the state governments in many cases are an ally in trying to crush or mitigate these non-state actors. So I would say just on the intellectual front, um, particularly on this question of the dichotomy of politics and theology, I would, I would hope that they could come away with a nuanced view which says something like this, that the theology and the ideology of contemporary jihadists is characteristic of Islam but not representative. And I think that's the way to get around this dichotomy. And I think hopefully that could allow them to speak a little bit more accurately and honestly to their constituents, both Muslim and non-Muslim, and a way to balance the complexity of the fact that we're not trying to paint all Muslims as jihadists, but nor are we trying to hide from the fact that uh, the jihadists do have an Islamic theology, and we need to face the truth of that and not pretend that when they talk about theology, they're really just talking about politics. Right, we can call a spade a spade without wearing rose-colored glasses. Dr. Cole, thank yeah, you so much for... Yeah, we to do that. If we're gonna, and, and we haven't been able to do that. <laughs> no, but uh, but I think what you wrote here is is a good help to uh, at least bring the ideological camp and some, some relevant recommendations for policymakers on the way. And, and at Middle East Forum, we'll make sure to get this article disseminated as wide and, and, and far as possible. Our communications team does a really good job with extending this to policymakers, and I think that uh, once we get this up on the podcast, we'll have our thousands of listeners being able to tune into you. Dr. Cole, thanks for joining us this morning from early morning. Really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Australia. <laughs> after, after these messages, Raymond Ibrahim. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your ranchers. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. 
Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. My next guest has been on the program before, but he has been mired in a review of minoritarian uh, uh, victims of Islamist violence over the past few months since he's gotten back to writing his regular column and his more uh, uh, you know preambulatory works after the release of his latest book, Sword and Scimitar, 14 Centuries of War Between Islam and the West. I'm very happy to bring Raymond Ibrahim back to this program. Raymond, welcome. Hi, Greg. Uh, thank you. Very good to be with you again. So, Raymond, first and foremost, I understand that we have an announcement to make about your visit to the East Coast. We're, uh, we're yep. going to see you, I think, in New York, Philadelphia, and uh, a few other locales here in, uh, in between uh, you know, the 95 corridor, Northeast corridor, June 17th, 18th, 19th, and, and maybe a few other dates. So we're really looking forward to hosting you out here in Philadelphia. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it, too. So, Raymond, before we get into uh, your, your latest, which has been a review, I think, of this um, uh, certain amount of, of Muslim and uh, Islamist-inspired violence against Christians, and you've been, you've been putting out this excellent reader on this history of attacks, and I want to get into some of the more gruesome and devastating things that our listeners really need to know about. But I was hoping I could get your reaction if you've had time to read the morning newspaper or the... Um, the uh, webcast, whatever it is that you do to get your news. I know you're three hours behind us right now. What exactly uh, happened in Manbij with the ISIS suicide attack against American forces on a daylight patrol out there? And is this is this something that uh, President Trump should take into part of his calculus of whether or not to leave northeast Syria? Well, uh, the issue with ISIS in Syria and in Iraq earlier, um, it depends on who you're listening to. A lot of people will tell you, of course, it's retreated, and it has. The group has, in fact, uh, retreated. But as you're seeing with recent news and such, it's not necessarily the case, and a lot of people on the ground are arguing that um, not only is the group still there, but you have a lot of people who normally you would not affiliate with them, you would not think are, quote-unquote, formal members, who are active um, in that sort of field and doing the sorts of things that ISIS does. Uh, so that's really what's uh, the situation in general. All right, and 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 so we have this, um, you know, ideologically driven entity that seeks to extend its influence and its power and its uh, you know innovation of violence way beyond that of the Middle East. But do you think that President Trump's decision to withdraw? is handing a victory to ISIS? Uh, possibly. Um, but then again, it's it, again, it's how you think of ISIS, I think, ultimately. If you think of it as a finite organization with members, uh, as most people often do, then uh, you'll eventually, most people, analysts and so forth, will say you have to have a withdrawal eventually. But if you think of it more as an amorphous ideology that, you know, 
takes on different names and different shapes and continuously morphs. As we know, ISIS, for instance, is originally in its origins a, a product of Al-Qaeda in that region. Right, with Abu Musab um, al-Zarqawi. Right, right. So you see it, and Al-Qaeda with people like um, Ayman Zawahiri was originally a part of the Muslim Brotherhood. So if you see it as a more of an amorphous, you know, Islamist ideology, well, you know, if you want to fight it, it's it's kind of you have to be in for the long haul. But of course, that itself is a problem because when you're fighting a, an ideology that's been around for a very very long time, um, it's hard to say when you can defeat it because you can defeat it on a temporal finite level, as I was saying. But it still lives there, and then all of a sudden you're going to have a whole new generation of people who are thinking and doing the same exact thing. So I think that's ultimately the difficulty with the war on Islamism. Well, this is the thing that we have to do. We, have, we definitely have to plug your book now because you're basically reading off the back cover. Uh, I'm going to quote from here for a second. Okay. Sword and Scimitar chronicles the decisive battles that arose from this ages-old Islamic Jihad, beginning with the first major Islamic attack on Christian land in 636 A.D., through the Muslim occupation of nearly three-quarters of Christendom, which prompted the Crusades, and so on and so forth. So it was ISIS attacking an American patrol this morning in Manbij. But we have 1,400 years of violence that we have to deal with, of Islamists, and it's different varieties. Like you said, every generation has its own take on how um, right. to, to, to take uh, Islamist thought and interpret it. Or not interpret it, but to, to channel it sometimes through violent means to achieve their political or their theological or whatever kind of goals you want. Right. But you know, I, I'm thinking if we had you know King Richard the Lionheart around right now, and we're learning about his battles against the you know the caliphs and anyone else in Jerusalem or in uh, Tal Afar, wherever that he was going, and he was speaking to a three-star general uh, sitting in Manbij, trying to understand how to react to this. What are some of the lessons that? commanders and politicians and other war fighters should learn from 1400 years of Islamist or, or what's called Islamic draconian inspired violence against the West and, uh, and, and, and our own, you know, different minority groups and, and different religious groups. Well, that's exactly it. So as I was saying, what, you know, we've been told ISIS, Islamic State, ISIL and so forth is often presented to us in the media as a, an aberration. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's some weird, unique, crazy criminal organization that somehow has hijacked Islam. But if you look at the history, as I delineate in, in the book, you mentioned Sword and Scimitar for 1,400 centuries, you have ISIS is basically a mirror of all these groups. So all the things that we associate with ISIS, whether shouting Allahu Akbar, the Islamic war cry before battle, beheading, crucifying, enslaving women and children, sex slavery, concubinage, uh, exacting jizya, or basically tribute from minority religious groups and so forth, all of that has happened on an exponential level for 14 centuries, or nearly, um, on Islam's war with the West, um, as, I, as I, again, like I said in the book. So this is the problem with when you fight a group like ISIS. Uh, you know, it has a name, it has an organization, it's a name, it has a, a person, a leader, and so forth. But if you have that ideology still living, and it's been around for 14 centuries, it's, uh, as I've likened it before to the myth of, you know, Hercules fighting the Hydra monster, where every time he cuts off one head, <laughs> two, more, two more pop out. And, and this, is actually, this has been the lesson of history. Of course, that history, you know, with vicissitudes has gone up and down, with sometimes where 
the Islamist, uh, you know, violence has been subdued. Sometimes it's been uh, even a much more extreme as when Islamic forces were in the heart of Europe uh, several times, conquering and slaughtering and so forth. As far as lessons learned, and you were mentioning King Lion, uh, I'm sorry, King Richard the Lionheart. Actually, I think maybe even a more apt and timely person is John Adams. Uh, so John <laughs> Adams, <laughs> John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson, and I and I discuss this at length in the book. Um, the Barbary Wars, you know. Uh, so when they met with the ambassador from Tripoli, and they asked him, "Why are you?" You know, the Muslims of North Africa basically were attacking American vessels and enslaving the sailors, and and the the two uh, American men asked the ambassador, "Why are you doing this? We've not, we haven't done anything to you." And he just basically answered. And the quote, the verbatim quote, is in the book. And he said, "Because our holy book, the Quran, and our Prophet have commanded us to make war, eternal war, on the kafir or the infidel, the non-believer." And to basically plunder them of their wealth and kill them and so forth, enslave them until uh, either they convert, etc. So John Adams, um, even though Thomas Jefferson wanted to and eventually did wage the Barfree Wars, John Adams made an interesting comment, which I documented in the book, and he said, I suggest we just pay these people off and not deal with them, because if we do engage them, we should be ready to engage them for eternity. <laughs> and uh, and I think that, that just gives you an idea. I think he understood the mentality that if it's rooted and it's a reading, a reading in the Quran and in the Sunnah of Muhammad, well, it's not something that's just going to disappear overnight. And I think that's what we're still seeing right now. But I think if you are a Western political leader and you have the determination and grit and the willingness to stay in for the long haul, then we've seen the West eject Islamists and or Muslim extremists from areas that were formerly under their control, whether it was the Balkans, whether it was Spain, um, I think Israel right now is a living testimony testament to what can be done if you're continually fighting for your borders, but you're willing to take the attack on the enemy. And even those Marines that Jefferson ordered to Tripoli back in the early 1800s is something where if we're willing to fight it and not have to pay off a, a guilt tax or another form of jizya, right, another form of, uh, mm -hmm. of, suppl of being a supplicant to this um, – to this extremist version of Islam or, or, or traditionalist, whatever you want to call it, or Orthodox, mm -hmm. I think that that it's a lesson that if you're if you're going to fight, you better fight till the end to at least eliminate the enemy, or you encourage them to have a change in their interpretation of the ideology that they're using against you. I know we we've actually had this debate, you and I, we've been in California mm -hmm. together. We had a few other things. How far can we go down that road of how open up, how how, how willingness they are to uh, to uh, uh, you know be able to to bend on their beliefs. But um, if you're going to get into it, you better fight all the way, because if you don't, then they're going to take advantage of you having a weak point, and you're going to have American servicemen blown up on a street in northeast Syria right after you declare that you're going to leave that country, right? The second right, they sense right, weakness, right. they attack. Well, exactly. And, you know, to add to that, and again, from a historical context, the one point where the West, specifically Europe, uh, what we call the colonial era, okay, so right around the 1800s and, and into the early 1900s, where you had European forces essentially dominate the Islamic world um, and bring with them, as opposed to the jihads into Europe, which brought nothing but depredations and mass slavery and pyramids of heads, at least the colonialists, you can say they brought with them education, medicine, science, etc., etc., freedom of religion. Um, but what you what you noticed is actually at that point is the most time that the Islamic ideology was in retreat, 
Uh, it's the most time that, uh, if, in, in other words, it's ironic, but if you go to, let's say, these countries 100 years ago, and, you know, I think our minds are programmed to think that people become more and more progressive as ta- with time. But if you actually go back 100 years ago, you will find in the Muslim world, it was so much more open, much more liberal. If you go to a country like Egypt or Syria, all the women were in dresses, wearing high heels, nothing, no head covering. All the men had suits. No one had a Salafi beard. Um, you know, th- it was the joke amongst Muslims. You know, anyone who's backward would be referred to as a sheikh or a cleric. Okay, a country <laughs> like Turkey. You know, Turkey, which was the you know the scourge of Europe for centuries in the guise of the Ottoman Empire, and it was the standard bearer of jihad for centuries, became the most secularized country during that time as well, and got rid of the Arabic script. Uh, they for you know they institutionalized secularism and so forth so i think you know if you do beat violent jihad and so forth and you beat that uh, mentality and you stay for the long haul you actually gain respect and emulation okay whereas retreat and cowardice and even um you know uh, uh appeasement and, and this sort of thing actually emboldens and makes the jihadist mentality grow and uh you know, disseminate throughout. And I think that's also what we're seeing. Raymond, we're going to go to a quick commercial break. You can stay with us for another segment. Of course. Okay. After these messages back with Ray Ibrahim, the intellectual backbone of American middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia Talk Radio. We are joined again for a second segment with the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Gateston Institute and a Judith Rosen Friedman Fellow at the Middle East Forum, Raymond Ibrahim. Raymond, welcome back. Thank you, Greg. So you have been publishing this monitor of Islamic Islamist attacks against Christian minority communities throughout the Middle East. For, for how long now? Some eight, nine years? You've been categorizing it? Well, this the report I've been doing since um, 2011. 
Right. So, yeah, about uh, you know eight years at least. So if we look at trends, I mean, you have basically an almanac, if, if we want to consider that, or, or some sort of register of every Islamist attack against a Christian uh, individual or a Christian community or even sometimes much grander levels of violence uh, over the last uh, eight years now. What are the top two or three trends that you see from when you've begun uh, uh, recording these uh, instances of violence in, in 2011 mm-hmm. through today? Yeah. Well, in fact, uh, since I started, I actually do categorize them by trends. So this is a very easy question, and uh, you know, I can give it to you in a very succinct and neat form. So the first trend is attacks on religious, uh, on, on freedom of worship or lack thereof. Okay, which which I specifically it manifests itself in attacks on churches. Now these attacks can come in three forms. One is the the famous uh, or spectacular form, which is a jihadist bombing. Okay, where you know a, a suicide bomber goes into whichever church in the Middle East, blows it up, and kills dozens or hundreds of people sometimes. Um, and this is more frequent than you may think. Uh, you know, it happened in Iraq, of course, soon after the fall of Saddam Hussein, and then with the rise of ISIS, it happens in Egypt, uh, but it also happens elsewhere. I mean, you know, even outside the Arab world proper, in Nigeria, um, and so forth. Uh, the second form that you'll see, uh, but actually going back to attacks on churches, uh, so you have the first one, which is jihad, then the second kind is the mobs. Okay, so this is very common, especially in a country like Egypt, Anytime, any, you know, and it always happens on a Friday when Muslims meet for, you know, their weekly prayers, and then they get riled up at a sermon because whoever the preacher is starts saying, oh, these, the cops of Egypt are either trying to rebuild a church, trying to fix a church, trying to add a toilet to a church, anything. And my, and a lot of the Muslims in attendance, thousands, go on, uh, you know, wild rampages attacking Christian homes, attacking the church itself or the house that was being used, or so forth. And then the security comes in and seals off the church and says, well, we can't have a church, it's a security threat. Um, And the last kind, which is related, is, you know, kind of a legal red tape jihad. And this is the sort that comes from governments, Muslim governments, who just do not allow churches uh, to be built or repaired. And you'll see this again even in Egypt. You know, uh, you, you're probably aware uh, Secretary of State uh, Pompeo recently went to Egypt and they showed him a, uh, a, a new cathedral that was built, you know. Right. And he came back and he basically just talked about the wonderful religious freedom in Egypt, you know. But at the same time, literally hundreds of churches are sealed off. Um, and 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 they were they're not given permits, and they'll and, and it'll be you know and Christians will have to walk miles to another village and crowd into a small little house that's being used as a church you know and just because they won't give it to them. Um, so this is of course this is the great facade that is being put up, and people uh, you know like Pompeo will see this, and I don't know if he realistically fell for it or is being diplomatic, but for him to say that Egypt is, you know, some kind of beacon of religious freedom. Well, that's not true. Once you look at the real churches that are actually being used and not something for show uh, like this. So anyway, churches are definitely, for me, one of the biggest telling signs. And also because when you attack a church, it's very clear what you're doing. I mean, you're attacking um, a Christian's right freedom of worship. So this is, when that happens, that's to me, you know, a very obvious sign 
of persecution. It's almost, in a way, even more so than when you kill a Christian. And the reason I say that is because if a Muslim kills a Christian, it's not necessarily, we can't necessarily always say it's because of his religious identity. Whereas if you're attacking a church where nothing happens but people go and pray, it becomes obvious uh, that, you know, this is just animus towards uh, Christianity and just religious freedom in general. Um, The second form is attacks on what I call Christian freedom, and this really uh, comes in three forms, uh, subcategories. One is, for any Christian who says anything that could be misconstrued as negative about Islam, and or basically colloquially blasphemy, and we see this, of course, very commonly, including in Pakistan. Can we, uh, you know, talking about Pakistan, can we quickly mention the Asya Bibi case? Sure, exactly, and uh, that's what I was going to say. So Asya Bibi was in jail uh, for a decade, on death row, okay, and her whole story, and which is very common, is she got in some quarrel with her co-workers, she was a field worker, and because she drank out of a cup that the Muslim women were using, they got angry, and a fight ensued, and they basically told her, the only way we can let this go is you have to convert to Islam, that way you're not an infidel who has sullied our cup, and so forth, she refused, and immediately they accused her of blasphemy, and in Pakistan and elsewhere, because it's Islamic law that the testimony of a Muslim is above that of a non-Muslim, well, their their words were instantly taken. And this happens all throughout Pakistan. Any, It's always usually for a personal vendetta. Some Muslim accuses some Christian who, you know, could be a business associate, and they're fighting together, and he instantly accuses the other that he blasphemed, and then that's the end of it. There's riots, that person's uh, arrested, possibly put on death row and so forth. So that's the Asya Bibi case, which is very representative of what happens in Pakistan. But, you know, to move briefly or quickly, so you got blasphemy, but you also have apostasy, and that's another form of attack on religious freedom. If you're born into Islam, you know, unlike other religions, you know, unlike, for example, Christianity, there's no ritual, you know, there's no baptism. If you're born to a Muslim father, you're a Muslim. That's the end of it. And if you decide and you're caught going to a church or bec- or openly saying you're a Christian or anything like that, you get attacked. And technically, under strict Islamic law, you can face the death penalty. And some people do, and some are killed, you know, from, you know, the vigilante Muslims who are out to kill apostate criminals, quote-unquote. And the final form is against preaching. Uh, this is another form of attack on freedom. So anything like evangelizing or proselytizing or any of that sort of thing, distributing Bibles, etc., could also will also get you in trouble. So all all these forms you see habitually all throughout the Muslim world, Christians suffer from these various types of things: the church, the attacks on churches, the attacks on the religious freedom, and the final form, which you know you can look at as a miscellaneous kind of thing, is just a general contempt and you know viewing Christians and other non-Muslims as basically you know secondary class citizens. Um, so so for instance, uh, criminals in the Muslim world who are not religious at all, will prey on, uh, you know, let's say Christians, uh, because they know that they don't have the full backing of the law, they don't have that much support, and so they're easy targets. They get raped, uh, kidnapped, their homes get robbed, uh, and and it's done intentionally because they know the authorities are not really going to care, they turn a blind eye. And so forth. Right. And so this, is, this is all within this is all within the Middle East. I mean, and then when you start having these cultural mores and norms start being exported to the mm-hmm. West, you see that mm-hmm. dichotomy transferring to Western noble democracies and having government authorities have to worry about that. So, if you don't right. reform or urge reform for what's happening to Christians in the Middle East, two things happen. Right, they end up in exile right. in Western countries, 
And more than that, when there's this population migration that moves from the Middle East to the West, they take these behaviors as being normal and you end up with these mass instances of misbehavior like the Cologne New Year's Eve, uh, mass rape instances that happened, um, attacks against, uh, and it's not just uh, Christian targets, we also see examples of jihadi violence against uh, Jewish targets and other minority targets, not not always politically motivated, but uh, ideologically and and, and religiously motivated. So Mm -hmm. if um, we don't ask in the West, our Muslim uh, allied governments, or if we don't at least hold them accountable for what they're doing to Christians at home, we end up facing those problems here too. Right, because and I mean, you know, so and as long and in the context of touting multiculturalism, you know, in the context of saying, oh, of course, Muslims should, you know, live, follow their customs and their laws, and let's, you know, for example, as as you see in the UK, you know, where you know they got Sharia courts and so forth, you see this sort of thing. So, for example, uh, Raymond, just saying, we have thir- we have thirty seconds left. Sorry. Okay, so as far as Asia Bibi, the UK, you know would not take her in because its Muslim population, which is large, was rioting, and they wouldn't have it. So that just gives you an idea of what happens when you have that culture proliferate in a free society. Yeah, it's okay for us to have our independence and sovereignty, but let's not suborn ourselves to the uh, standards of those Middle Eastern countries and some of their uh, less... uh, uh, um you know, uh, acceptable populations and customs. Raymond Ibrahim, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Greg. Everybody by Sword in the Scimitar, 14 centuries of um, war and, and, and Islam. I'll get the title right the next time we put it on the podcast. Thanks, Raymond. <laughs> sure. Okay. Thanks, Ray. And that was it for this morning here on Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. Thanks to Delaney Janchek, our producer, and to everyone in the Middle East Forum for coming on the program today. We'll be back live next Wednesday here on 860 AM Philadelphia Talk. I'm Greg Roman. Have a great week.